it's yeah, it shortcuts data creation in a way that doesn't require uh, programming. But we still have to do quite a lot of programming to actually make the games. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 378 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the Game Dev Comedy Podcast, Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm the tools programmer. I'm Sam and I'm the artist. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is August 23rd, 2020. Before we get started, we have a warning. Uh, anything can happen in this show. There's going to be profanity. Yep. There's going to be there's going to be swears. Uh, so if you're not comfortable with that, then it's okay. You know, you just, uh, you just, go, just go do something. Just go do something else. Go sketch a sketch a little cartoon. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, play some play some uh, horseshoes. Mm-hmm. Make mm-hmm. a good soup. Yeah, make some, make a make a crock pot. Get a crock pot going. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. check in on that thing in about eight hours, uh, and, you, and you don't have to hear, hear any cursing mm-hmm. yeah. when you're working with a crock pot. It's just a very chill, That's true, slow actually. burn. Yeah, so. yeah. It's, it's hard to because often in cooking, you know, you'll do something and be like, ah, oh, fuck, you know. But like with yeah. a crock pot, not like, with a crock pot. You just throw stuff in just, there and you just yeah. turn a knob. Everything is slow. It's chill, chill. You know, baby. I feel like they missed the whole marketing <laughs> beat there. It's sort of the. It's the the kitchen tool for people who don't want to be vulgar, you know? Yeah. That's right. It's like the infomercial, you know, where it's like, it just shows somebody like trying to cook in other ways. And they're just like, then they have to be bleeped constantly because they keep fucking things up, you know? (laughs) And they're like, do you, do you want to avoid profanity in the kitchen? You know? Yeah. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. You ever see Gordon Ramsay cooking with a crock pot? No. Good point. No, you don't. Have you ever seen him not cussing? Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Uh, anyways, we'd also like to thank uh, our supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net, whose recurring support helps keep the podcast running. And we also uh, have a sponsor for this episode, uh, which is Favro, favro.com. And we'll talk more about that uh, a little bit later. So uh, what's going on in the studio? Let's let's talk about Game, Game Devs of Color Expo. Yeah. It's coming up next month. And for those who aren't aware, it's just a, it's another, you know, game dev conference, people giving cool talks and all sorts of stuff. All uh, virtual. All virtual. And actually we have one of our own, one of our own peeps in there doing talk yeah. stuff. Yeah. So Jen, is- Jen Coster's doing that. So you'll, you'll see her up on the the front page with all the pictures of all the cool people doing all their cool talks, you know? So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So she's giving a talk about narrative uh, lenses and um, it's really about the hero's journey and how maybe you should think a little bit more about it as a concept before adopting it as a default. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so it's a good talk. It's good. Congrats it's good. to Jenny for finishing that talk. I know it was very labor intensive because talks always are. Uh, it's gonna be good. So y'all should go to the expo and hear all the other people too. Um, they've uh, they've been doing this expo for a few years and they've always got a good lineup and some really interesting talks. So check it out. Yeah. Uh, Now I don't want to go into the substance of the talk because I want everybody to go, you know, go see it, go go watch Mm -hmm. the talk. Um, But I do want to talk about the production of the talk because it was really interesting and fun to watch, uh, to watch Jen put this talk together because she's, she's done a lot of, uh, you know, speaking in her in her day, but not like this. Yeah, it know? was all in because she came comes from medicine, where she was a doctor for a while, right? And so it was all academic contexts, you know, very different kind of a vibe 
an audience and also audience expectations. Yeah. And, and a lot of the academic stuff is, is somebody has required that you put together a presentation, right? And they're, they're making you do it. And, uh, and the audience is going, also captive. Yeah. The audience is captive and they're going to listen. And it's also only for that audience, right? It's, it's not for any really anybody else outside of the room. Um, yeah, you still have to figure out who so, your audience is, but you get to assume a lot, and you also get to assume, get to a assume lot of that homogeneity kind of in, in uh, context, where like they all know a lot of the same stuff, um, and you still do have to figure out what that is, right? But you get to make a lot more assumptions going in about what they know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you're making a talk that is for more general um, consumption that nobody really actually has to listen to. And also you don't have to do it actually. Like you signed up to do it, right? And it's not like for a, a thesis or whatever. Everybody's there voluntarily. And so now all of a sudden the the pressures change, right? Because like you you've got to make it interesting. You've got to make it entertaining. You've got to make people care. And you, you you can't just launch right into your topic. You actually have to like really set the stage and, and get people on the same page because you also don't know who Everybody is who's watching. You don't know what their experiences are. You don't know whether they know the same things that you know. Probably they, they don't. D- they definitely right? don't. Yeah, they and, definitely don't. And they don't even know for sure why they're there a lot of the time because they have just enough context to know that they are interested in in the topic as you've presented it. So it's like buying a video game. Like we talk about all the yep. time, right? Like you see the marketing materials and you're like, that seems up my alley, but I don't know for sure, right? And then you go jump in and start playing it, but. Now, now, when you actually experience it, when your real reality kind of hits that, you're like, oh, okay. So all of a sudden, the expectations that you had as a, you know, player, as the consumer, um, meet a completely different reality, right? And so the game's design, just like a talk design, is trying to be ready to catch that person, right? When when they're surprised by things that they didn't expect, and still help them have a good experience. Yeah. So it's been it's been cool to see her go through the process because she's you know been checking in with us in the in the studio at different points as she's been preparing the the talk and kind of she's been discussing with us like these kind of um, struggles and realizations that she's had putting this thing together um, and it's been really cool to kind of see her go through that same like set like series of realizations about the things that she had to focus on and the things that mattered that we've had to go through as we put together our own GDC talks and, and stuff like that. Um, and then the other thing is just that, that the, so her talk is, uh, it's like 20, it's 20 minutes, something, yeah. 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, that's that like the hardest length of talk to yep. give. And it's funny because when she was at the outset, she was deciding how long she, I think she had the option to do a one hour talk. Yeah. She could choose between and, the, yeah. yeah, and she went for the twenty minute talk because she's like, yeah, it's twenty, it's one third as long. It's way easier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's easier to give the talk, yeah. but to prepare a twenty minute talk is way way harder than an hour talk because you have to cut so many things. You have to keep it very tight. Uh, you've got to figure out all. Like, there's lots of things that you want to talk about and a lot of nuance that you want to get at mm-hmm. that you have to just completely eliminate. You, yeah. you just can't get into it. And know? that's particularly hard coming from, which I can speak from experience, coming from an academic context because an academic talk, I mean, in like in, in academic context differs, right? But in like in my field of, of uh, microbiology and like a lot of science fields like that, the talk that you're presenting is you're basically trying to make a case for something that you think you have found, right? Mm-hmm. And you're doing that to an extremely skeptical audience, right? 
And so it's all about the nuance. It's all, it's nuance. all about the nuance, like top to bottom. And so, so like when I would give when I would give talks when I was in grad school, I would be prepared to like I'd put a slide up, and I would know that that the audience could try to dissect that one like graph I put up for the for the whole fucking hour. Like I know that they could, and they could just pepper me with questions. So I had to come in being like, okay, I need to. I need to figure out what the nuance is that I need to impart so that I can skip all of that and get on to the next thing. But it still required hitting all the nuance explicitly. But in a talk that's more for general consumption and is not doesn't have the same relationship with the audience, you have to figure out which nuance to just hope that your reader or that your viewers will already have, but know that not all of them will, but you just don't have time. When it's a you know twenty five minute yeah. general consumption talk, yeah, and so in kind of a an inversion of expectations, then you know making a twenty minute talk just takes way longer than making a one hour talk. Uh, and so she had commented on that a few times. She's like, "Man, this is this thing is going way over over the preparation time that I thought it was going to uh, going to take." Um, so she, but you know, she, she got it done. She got it put together and it turned out great. Uh, so we all, we all watched it. And, uh, so congrats to Jen mm-hmm. on getting this, getting this talk in there. Nice so job. again, that's at the, uh, it's at the game devs of color expo. Yeah. Their sure. acronym is GDoc, but if you just look up GDoc, you'll end up at Google docs. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta go to game devs of color expo. Yeah, um, unfortunately that's, that's their website. It's just game devs of color expo.com. So dot com. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that'll be was it September fifteenth? Fifteenth. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So check definitely check that out. Uh, all right. Now we're gonna go. Uh, we're just gonna go into some questions. So you may have noticed if you're if you've got a keen ear that we're recording this episode pretty shortly after the prior episode because we've got a lot of wacky scheduling stuff happening. You may also uh, notice another episode having a suspiciously similar date to this one yeah, you know, in the future. it will be in the future. Yeah. Uh, so, because so, uh, I'm going to Amsterdam for a, for a week, uh, and Sam is going, Sam's off uh, for the for yeah, this upcoming week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so lots of stuff happening. I'm very pumped to go to Amsterdam. I'm sure I'll have mm-hmm. more to say about it, you know, once I once you come back. get back. But I've never been to Europe. Yeah, like just straight up, I've I've been I've I've spent like six months in India or something um, over the past ten years, but uh, I haven't been to Europe. I've passed through Europe on my way to India, you know. <laughs> uh, and I've been, airports, a, I guess. Yeah, I've I've gone. Yeah, I've gone through. You know, London. I've gone. Well, London's not. That's not part of the. That's not part of Europe anymore. That's they, right. Yeah, yeah. So they're 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 out. So that's they're just their own thing. Uh, but yeah, so I'm excited to check that out. But I'll say more about that. Uh, so yeah, our scheduling is all wacky right now. So not too much has happened since the last episode. So we're going to kind of just go into some questions. Um, but first let's talk about our sponsor. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about Favro. Favro.com. Yeah. So yeah. Favro is a tool we've used for now a long time. Uh, and dare I How say- How long has it been? Two years? I think about. And to the point where it's it's actually, we usually switch off of a tool within about six to 12 six months, months, especially, year, yeah. Yeah, especially uh, organizational tools for managing work. And the reason why we've stuck around on the Favreau side is something that I think uh, hopefully a lot of the people who are listeners here doing you know project work, doing creative work, doing programming tasks of any scope and size is basically the flexibility of the thing to design your own workflows and really easily sync up with other people on your team without having to 
blow up a bunch of new tasks and manage those new tasks uh, sort of separately. So you can have these these single cards that live in multiple places at once, which sounds, again, like it doesn't sound like much of a thing. Maybe you can't quite grok how big of a deal that is. But when, as an artist, I have my own workflow for concepting all the way through, you know, a finished, polished product, and I can have that same card be the one that Seth has in his box while he's doing his programming stuff. All of our notes are in the same spot. Yeah, it just his really- own workflow. So he has his, like Seth's got his columns for like what his tests mm-hmm. look like and you know like what it means to move uh, an asset through to production from a programming side. Sam's got his own right that does that, and they can be like flicking these these things back and forth too, right? Mm-hmm. And communicating on the same card so that Sam can make a comment. While set, while he's working on one aspect of his art stuff because he's got a draft out to Seth, and then Seth can reply to that comment as if it's in his own mm-hmm. inbox, you know. Yeah. So yeah, yep. I, I think same. I think you're right. Like it's, it's one of those things that you can't appreciate that 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 concept it, until it doesn't exist anywhere else. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. exist anywhere else. And so it's uh, the missing it, feature from all other pieces of 100%, work management. 100%. Software. And I think the final large benefit of that that we haven't talked about too much before is on the production side, which is that. Uh, if you do really enjoy that kind of higher level production tracking of say like a whole sprint or something like that, this basically gives you a mechanism to with, with noting one feature to actually see where it's at in all of the pipelines of work associated uh, with your studio. So you can just at a glance, basically see on the feature for like, I don't know, putting a new enemy into the game, where it's at in art, where it's at in programming, where it's at yeah. on the QA side. Uh, right. Cause you can see that, its status on every board that it, every brisket workflow that it's currently living in so as a, yeah. yeah. So you just, this little quick compact summary of just what's going on with this thing. You don't have to, you have to ask anybody, you just look at mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So we're still very much enjoying it. Uh, highly recommend it. So for those out there looking for a solution or uh, maybe looking to change things up and get a bit more out of your workflows, highly recommend Fabro. Now you can go get it. Fabro.com slash bscotch. Don't forget that latter part. So they know that, you know, we sent you. Yeah. That's the important bit. Yeah. Now, one thing to know about it uh, is that it does require setup because it's so flexible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not going to be uh, something like Trello, where like Trello has one way to do stuff. And so when you go in there, it's like, here's how you do things. You know, yep. when you start using Favro, you first need to ask yourself, how do I want to do things? And you and you can make it just do things the way that you want. Yeah. Right. It's a Which blessing is, and a curse because that means you gotta yeah. you gotta give it some time. You gotta think. You gotta you're. Since it can adapt to you, you know, within its within its uh, tool set, um, and that's actually a lot of adaptation. So you have to like learn how it works, and then look at your own workflows, but also then consider. And a lot of what we had to do, we spent a few days collectively, like figuring out how to set everything up. Was that we hadn't had the option to tailor yeah. workflow management tools to our work. We always had to do it the other way around, and so now all of a sudden we could. It wasn't that we were like, how do we take the workflow we have and now like make this work with Favro, but instead was, okay, now the tool can do anything. So now what workflow do we want? Which meant all of a sudden we were redesigning our actual workflows, which is what we should be doing, right? To work well for us. And then figuring out kind of how that, how to construct a collection of, you know, boards and things on Favro to work with that. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you can just pop in and just use it like you've used other you know, other things, but that's not where the power is. Right? Yeah, you got to give it an honest deep dive. Yeah, it's adaptable. So, so pick it up, start using it, take the time to really think through. Uh, and you, you know, you'll be real hard pressed uh, to find something, something better yeah, once yep. you really get in there. So, and that's a favorite.com uh, slash 
Scotch. Uh, there's also going to be yeah. a link in the show notes, um, so you don't have to try to remember that. Yeah. All right, now let's get into some questions. These questions come from our listeners over at podcast.bscotch.net. If you'd like to get your question onto a future episode, you can just go there and Tippity-tap it in the text box and click, on, click some upvote arrows and uh, away we go. Yeah. Right, our highest question comes from Blonde Viking 91 who says, Okay, bros, just admit it. You are skirting around developing or retooling a programming language as part of the game changer. I can see through all your euphemisms, objects, behaviors, interactions. Don't think we're not on to you. Have you addressed... <laughs> Have you addressed this head-on with the current fad of no-code solutions bringing out all the horrible stories of similar attempts over the past five decades? I personally think you would be better off in the long run with a slightly steeper on-ramp for content creators. Oh, interesting. I have – there's a lot to unpack here, but I have a statement about that kind of last bit in particular, which is I, I, I'm actually I'm, – I'm in part right there with you with respect to no-code tools. So for – for people listening who don't know what that is, that's current. I'm going to call it a fad, but I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean fad is like it's, it's a trend. That's probably a better way to say it. Uh, but I think potentially also a fad. Um, and so the idea is basically as as our programming tools get better and better, especially in like the world of the web, right? Because everyone wants a website. Everyone wants to sell things on websites and, and so on. Uh, but also we want to be able to automate things. So now we're all using 100 services, right? And so the idea of, of like the no-code uh, uh, revolution, I guess, as a lot of people would in that space would call it, is to provide mechanisms where you can come in without knowing how to program, without knowing a specific language, and you can use something that is tailored for uh, you know user interaction, so that a smart person who doesn't know the underlying details can still accomplish stuff, whether that's build a website, whether that's hook one thing into another thing, right? And so you've got things like Zapier or make.com or a jillion other things that kind of live in this space. Um, and the thing that these suffer from is that the services that you think of, when you think of like the no-code revolution, it's basically a, a new collection of services, right? Uh, They're coming out, each one of which is trying to be a general tool in some domain. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to expose your ability to do certain things, right? Uh, uh, well, I will say just just to clarify, what these services are really doing is they're just making it so that you can interact with APIs. Yeah. Right. So, so that's like stuff, generally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because because if you think about it, like any software you use is a no code solution. Like Microsoft Excel is a no code solution, yes. mm -hmm. as is like Google yep. Docs. Yep. Right. You don't you don't have to be a programmer to use most of the software that people use, yeah. right? Yeah. No code um, is trying to bring you closer though. So like cause the cause the the idea is you're taking things and instead of like a full solution like, you know, Microsoft Word, right? But instead something like um, building a website, right? Which is currently done almost exclusively in code, right? And so like yeah. the no-code thing is is not about just the fact that you're not using code. It's about the fact that you're taking something that normally can only be done in code currently, right? And right. trying to move it into a space where that's not true anymore. And But your point about this being about APIs in that space is, is correct. And it's not also the, the problem because anybody who's used one of those tools will very quickly run into a thing that, that the tool can't do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then when the tool can't do it, 
neither can you because you don't have access to anything except what that tool has exposed. It's kind right? of a it's kind of a black box. Yeah, and that's and I think that's where all of the problems and risks and issues come into when you're investing into a no code solution, which is different. Which we have the same problem also with the game changer in that if Sam wants to do something, you know, with his with his assets and he can't because the thing hasn't exposed it. He, the idea isn't that, oh, he goes into the programming and just programs it himself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, because we're making this for ourselves to make games, right? And it's not a general purpose tool. Then all Sam has to do is talk to Seth and say, hey, I need this also exposed, right? Hey, can you give me a checkbox to make this thing flip left and right yeah. when you put it down? Yeah. yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. Well, and, and it, cre- it creates a standardized way of solving that kind of a problem. Because in the past, if Sam said... You know, hey, uh, I really want it to be the case that I can make a kind of a tree in the game that uh, has like a a much longer respawn timer Mm -hmm. so that it's, you know, more rare or whatever. Right. Then then in the past, that would just always be a I would just take that request and just go into the code and uniquely just solve that problem. Right. So one way I would solve it, maybe I would go through the code that manages respawn timers, mm-hmm. right? And add something to that system so that I can sort of like code up an exception for this tree or, you know, whatever, right? Um, but that's not a that's not a reusable solution because then the next time Sam says, hey, I want this unique behavior on this other thing, then I go into that code and figure out how it's working and add, add something to that code, right? So the idea with the, the game changer is that Everything is described in the same way, and I can just add checkboxes and sliders and whatever um, so that whenever Sam says he wants the ability to edit something or change something or create something, then it all goes through the same system, uh, and he now has an editor for it from that point forward mm-hmm. forever, right? And uh, and then everything just goes way, way, way faster. Like the iteration speed on that stuff and the amount of decisions you have to make and all of that, it's all way slicker. Yeah, so I think so the think editor and the and like the code underlying code functionality are being developed together, right? It's not that there's like something sitting on top that's like trying to figure out how it can like integrate with and talk to the underlying stuff. It's it's all developed in concert so that it becomes sort of an extension of it with the intention of exposing all of the things that should be exposed yeah. to the uh, the content part of the pipeline. Yeah. But even yeah. I think what's interesting about those is the, is the I think Seth your earlier point about the what's the difference between no code and just software. Mm-hmm. You know when you really mm-hmm. get down to it because I think that's that's it's an interesting uh, point here about where you're trying to draw these fuzzy borders around things and what the purpose of any given one of those things might be because to me the purpose typically of no code solutions is to provide you with the ability to code without coding right it's very specifically yeah. to code without coding versus a piece of software. Um, is much more right, where you still think of the output as code. Like you might not exactly. be coding, but the output is code. Yeah, versus a piece of software where you're you're designing the whole thing as a tool to achieve some particular end, but it's, the end is not to produce code, right? Um, to do coding, and so I think I wouldn't actually call the game changer a no code solution in the same way that I would at the to Seth's point wouldn't call Excel a no code solution. It's rather it's a different it's a content it's a content uh, management and development tool. It's data management. It's data management. It's not a it's not a code management interface, um, and I think that's that's a very important note because that's where I think if you're talking about no code solutions and why they typically uh, fall apart, you know, it's it's not dissimilar from if you're if you are in Excel and you're like, oh, there's this weird 
thing I need to do, but uh, I can't, you know, there's no easy way to actually make it, make it happen. Right. Uh, and to Adam's point, the difference in our case is that we could just make that then happen and now we have it. And so it works very much more so like a data management and a, a content descriptor yeah. Yeah. pipeline. Well, and I, I think, think, I think, I think actually I kind of extend along that idea. Mm-hmm. It's like, because you're generating code with a no code tool, right. And that, I think that's a good way to think mm-hmm. about it. Then it necessarily takes something that is extremely expressive, which is a programming language where you can kind of do anything, right? Mm-hmm. As long as you can figure out how to do it, but you can kind of do anything. And then it's adding a layer on top that is more accessible, but that is necessarily not able to do anything. It's actually reducing expressivity, right? Yes. Um, versus some other context that you wouldn't think of as, as a, like a no-code solution, right? Is because the it's not that it's a layer sitting on top of this like very raw layer that can do literally anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it actually has a specific purpose. It's I think it's the generalization aspect of it that really like it's like the generalization and the the sitting right on top of code um, that collectively means that no code tools what they're mostly doing is reducing expressivity in exchange for providing accessibility, mm-hmm. right? And in other kinds of software, you're not, that's not what's happening, right? You're not like, like Sam, like you're saying with Excel, right? Excel is, you know, it's a spreadsheet, right? So like it's expressivity is basically how do you move numbers around in rows and columns and across like sheets, right? And that's what it's all about. That's its whole thing. It's not reducing your expressivity in the way that it's trying to present stuff. It doesn't give you, it doesn't try to give you access to like so the underlying programming structures that allow it mm-hmm. to do its thing. Right? Yeah, it's not trying to do, it's not trying to allow you to do literally anything, right? There's, yeah, that's not a, an existing layer. Yeah, it's trying to solve a, a suite of very specific kinds of problems in that context. Um, and I think the, the final bit that I want to hone in on is that the last bit of the question, which was, which was, I think, phrases, I think you would generally want a higher or steeper learning curve for content creation. Is that, is that how it was worded? Uh, yeah, I said, I'll, I think you'll be better off in the long run with a slightly steeper on-ramp for content creators. And we'll talk about that because if you, if you, I think if you asked anyone who makes anything ever, what would be a considered a feature that you would want? I do not think you would ever want a steeper on-ramp. There's many questions about this framing. <laughs> uh, well, it's also like, asserting I think, that that would be an exchange for something. Right? I think that's the question yeah, that's is, to me, what actually. are you, ex- what are you going to end up with? So like, what is it? We, what is it that we would do differently that would require there to be a steeper on ramp, but that we would get something in return? Yeah. So my, what I think is actually actually being stated there is essentially saying to your point about expressivity versus mm-hmm. uh, basically generic solutions that don't quite tend to reach the last mile. Um, my guess is what this is actually saying is you would probably you would probably be a bit better benefited by having a higher level of expressivity in the game changer from the designer standpoint. Yeah. Um, then, which then, which not, then which implies then it would require would a require, steeper yeah. learning curve. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, I wanted to bust it out because I was like, so it was a, it was a weird way of, of saying that because I think in, in general you don't you don't ever want it. like ideally you have the shortest learning curve possible for frankly anything like it's sort of always the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so how do you get expressivity happen. without making onboarding worse? Yeah, you know. so yeah, and, and it's so the way that things work at the moment is is that like Sam was saying, the game changer is is an editor for data, right? So so the the on ramp to use the game changer as a content creator is very easy, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it's still the case that the the game has to be programmed to use the data, 
Yeah. Right. So it's not that it's not that, you know, they're just being a checkbox in the game changer. It's like add multiplayer and then it's just in there. Right. Yeah. Like this. It's not it's not quite like that. Um, and in the in the scenario we we're talking about earlier where, you know, if Sam said, hey, I want I want to be able to edit this aspect of something. Right. I can actually uh, I can add that checkbox for him or a slider or a number or a drop down menu or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and he can go in and just start checking those boxes, uh, before it's ever even hooked up to the game. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is actually something that we did. And we talked about, uh, with the quests system, uh, I think in the last episode or, or at some point pretty Mm -hmm. recently, um, which is that we, we built, we designed the structure of how we wanted quests to be defined as data. And we started building test quests in the game changer, but there were no, there was no code in the game that was actually interpreting those quests and showing them in the game and using them in gameplay, right? So the game changer is, it's just data management and we can set it up to express the data in whatever way works the best. Um, and, and interacting with that data is very easy. There's, there's very little training required for somebody. And also it's set up in such a way that and I have to, to kind of like, whenever I'm bringing somebody in to start using the game changer, I have to kind of reiterate, like, you can't break this. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not going to let you do anything yeah. that would be it's bad. safe to right? <laughs> Yeah, which by yeah. itself, I mean, uh, like, can you say to your content team or like to any of your design team that they actually can go wild? Because like, like, you literally cannot. Yeah. If there's a button that you can click, then it's safe to click. Right. Uh, if there's any, if there's anything that you're that, and if as soon as you hit something that would be problematic, it will stop you and be like, no, you can't do that. Uh, yeah. And so that's, that's it's the whole point dude. of the thing yeah. is that people can just jump in there with very little training and they can start exploring and playing around with things. And it's a, it's a safe space. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that there isn't a bunch of programming that happens alongside it to take that data and make it, you know, usable. Um, so in a way it's like, it's a no code mechanism of generating and describing content, but we still actually do require a lot of code to actually interpret and use the content Mm -hmm. in the game. Um, I mean, in the, you know, in the perfect world, that wouldn't be true. We wouldn't need any code on any side of it, but I don't, I don't foresee that, uh, happening at any point and just hit you just hook it up to, uh, you know the github copilot you just send in your game changer data yeah. it's like i just think tap 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 yeah but i but there's something else about this that i think is kind of an interesting note when it comes to the idea of like no no code solutions are basically trying to get at an accessibility problem yes um for for programming and to me the the accessibility problem is there's a huge amount of implicit knowledge that programmers have about how programming works mm-hmm. um, and how programming languages tend to do things. And, and about the don't, consequences of certain kinds of like data related decisions, right? Yeah. And if you don't have that implicit knowledge, then you literally don't know what questions to ask. And so if somebody says like, hey, here's an address for our web API, go nuts. And you look at it and, and if you're not a programmer, you look at that and you're just like, what is this garbage? Like yeah. this is just a bunch of weird words that I've never heard of. There's no information here about how I would actually set something up on my computer to use this API and like do stuff with it. And uh, and for me personally, this was my issue where I, I tried, I mentioned in the past, I tried to learn how to code all through college and 
I could never get past the on-ramp because the on-ramp was always setting up your development environment and installing six different pieces of software, making sure they're all at the right versions. And then just to write some code, you've got to do these like importing libraries thing where those libraries are kind of black boxes that you don't understand. And then you use those libraries, right? Um, and I'm looking at all this and I'm like, what, what is happening here? Yeah. Right? Yeah, you're bootstrapping together like this, like really big, complicated inner working machine without, and, and, and without any in, understanding in order any to get to the point where you can start to learn about it. Right. Yes. Which means, yeah. you know, no, and you can't debug the stuff that's happened. Like you don't know anything about what's happening. Right. And to the point where even like. You're just, you're just, you just, all you can do is just follow ex- the exact instructions. And yeah. oftentimes. The instructions get out of date, and so the steps don't work. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, you have no, yeah, and you don't know what to do because you have you don't even know why you were doing stuff in the first place. Mm-hmm. So like, I couldn't get into programming because of that on ramp, and it really wasn't until I got Game Maker because in Game Maker it's self contained. Like you install Game Maker and you code in Game Maker, and Game Maker has functions, and you don't have to import libraries or or know anything else. Right, you just do your code and it runs exactly the way that you would expect it to, right? Um, and to me, that was the on ramp, right? It wasn't that like it wasn't that I needed a no code solution. It was that I needed a way to code that shortcutted past all of the bullshit parts of setting up, just like being able to write some code. Because <laughs> programming is actually it's not it's not uh, it, it's not complicated in its concepts. Like the the logic of like using variables and assigning things and and making functions and stuff, uh, those concepts are accessible concepts to to most people. Yeah, I mean right? it's way less complicated than just natural language. It's just that you're taught natural language and immersed in it from the moment you're born, right? But in yeah. terms of like complexity and like difficulty of concepts and all that kind of stuff, uh, it's. Because everything about it is always unambiguous. It means exactly one thing every time, right? And there's a finite number of th- things that any given thing or that, that can even be meant, right? Yeah. But it's in their combination that you get the cool stuff, right? And so, yeah, yeah it's actually – It's like the, the, it is yeah, the core sense. pieces. Yeah, the core pieces of, of writing code are are fairly intuitive to most people. And sure, like when you're writing much more elaborate uh, code – requires you to like really get into the logic and sort of map it out in your, in your mind. Yeah. Right. And, and there's understand a, how like, there's that's a ton where of it gets, you know, and surprises. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But like at its core, to me, the problem is not the fact that there's code. It's the fact that getting to the point where you can write code is such a huge, huge burden mm-hmm. that, uh, that everybody's to me solving the wrong problem. Like, they're shortcutting past and like we're making all these no code solutions as if code is the problem. When really to me it's it's onboarding into code that that is the problem. I mean, dev environments basically being the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's. I mean, I, I think or rather, that, it's to me to me it's it's the bigger problem. I shouldn't say it's not a problem. Like yeah, everything yeah. can be. But a I think the problem, kind of the. I think maybe the more, the more like nuanced, interesting takeaway here is actually the idea of of the artificiality of like creating some point and being like, okay, so this is now like the no code interface to the underlying code, right? Or this because the reality is that like when you're anytime you're doing anything with with building software, right? It's layers upon layers upon layers of stuff, right? Because you're logic, yeah. Because you're and you're because you're abstracting things away, and you're like you take a whole bunch of logic that does one thing, and then you bundle it up and say, okay, I'm gonna 
kind of hot tuck this away. I'm going to call this a function. You put stuff in it, it gives me stuff back, right? And I'm going to kind of tuck it away so you don't have to look at it and worry about the details. And now all of a sudden I'm using a function. Like was, you know, Is was that, that low a low code? code solution, right? Because because there's also yeah. a low code, right? So like... <laughs> And, and actually, yes, it is, right? And you could take like these new libraries that keep on coming out in like the web space that try to make it easier and easier and easier to make an interactive website, but without having to like understand all the details about JavaScript, without having to like do everything yourself, right? And, but that's in the end, that's just JavaScript, like underneath, right? Again. Well, and also, the and you can call that low code again if you want to, but like, no matter what layer you're at, that's just a lower code layer than the, the layer before that. Right. And it's very artificial to like pick one and say, like, maybe we've gone too far. Right. Yeah. Versus and asking what is the point of each one of these and how do we make it easier to get in between these and how do we make it easier at each lower rung, right? To actually accomplish things. Yeah. And and I see things like um like Unreal Engine has their blueprints system. Yeah. Um, which is which is fantastic. Um, as a, you know, low code or no code way of like putting together game logic. Right. And game maker has a visual interface as well that you can use to like connect things together. Um, but what's interesting about those is like, they are not actually no code solutions because, because the things that you do, the kinds of logic that you use is just the exact things that you would do when you write code. Right, but the, like that's you, you create variables and you hook them together. You yeah. just aren't typing it. Yeah. But right. I, I do think that's to me that is the difference. So if, if you're talking about to me yeah. what a no code solution is, it's it is a it's an abstracted way of producing code, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. without typing. Yeah, it's just creating creating a new interface on top. Yeah, of, and so I think, yeah. but I think that's the main understanding. The important thing to note as far as what the game changer is versus what it isn't. It is not for code creation. It is not for it's code. for data. It's for, it's data, for data creation. Yeah. yeah. And this seems like maybe a maybe a uh, uh, odd way to split it, but the reality is what we've seen from our production pipeline stuff is that splitting along the dimension of basically programming as the implementation of data, the expression of data inside of a game, and then data as the expression of the design and artistic intent for the game and balance and all that. Splitting along that line actually provides you these two parallel pipelines that really nicely reinforce each other. And if you set up proper systems and stuff, can really speed up the overall pipe basically. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And you can, and you can hijack things way easier when the data is so easy to work with. So here's yes. a, here's a fun, here's a fun example of just what happened just yesterday. All right. So in the original Crashlands, mm -hmm. okay. Uh, recipes were things that you could find out in the world and they're represented by like a little crate with like a yellow gear icon. Yeah. On you it. just like chopped down um, a tree and then all of a sudden a little crate would fly a, out of it. A little recipe fly out. Yeah. And we also can give you recipes as quest rewards and whatever. Um, one of the you know things that you definitely have to do when you're working on a game is make sure that player progress is saved between sessions, right? So, so whenever players would get these recipes, we would have to make sure that we had, we had set up a separate system for tracking which recipes you have obtained and which ones you have not yet obtained. And we basically it's kind of like we would like check them as found, right? So whenever we saved your your game data. Uh, then we would go through all your recipes and write the ones to disk that you've saved or that you've that you've acquired, right? And that's that's a separate system from stuff like how many items do I have? Where have I been in the world? You know all that stuff. So, uh, so, anyways, to summarize that, it's it's 
having recipes as findable things required its own unique solution mm-hmm. in the original game. So in Crashlands 2, we were you know working through the questing system and the conversation came up of, uh, hey, like, can we get something in Crashlands 2 that that allows that- us to deliver, yeah, to deliver recipes in the same way where we can just give the player a recipe, right? Now, in the past, the way we would solve this in a in a totally code-heavy way would be to say, yeah, we'll just do what we did where it's kind of like we set up a new way of a, a new kind of data where we're saving to disk what you've what recipes you've gotten and it's basically got a growing list, right? Um, but this time around we have the game changer. And so we looked at the game changer and I was like, well, I mean, we could just make those recipes as just items. And when you get them, they just go into your inventory because we already are saving your inventory to, to disk, right? And then and then unlocking a recipe uh, is actually just you've got that crate in your inventory, <laughs> right? So we just and then we can just hide it. So now, so, yeah. like, so now the feature that has to get added is actually being able to hide things in your inventory. Like a, yeah, which actually yeah. the game already does that by default. Yeah, so yeah. there you go. So right? that was, yeah. And so so no new system required. Um, literally just like made a new kind of an item called a, we called it a schematic, right? It's like got a new schematic uh, and boom, that mm-hmm. just automatically hooks into all the existing things. So now like schematics can be given to the player in the course of a quest, just the same way that they would give you a weapon or mm-hmm. anything like that. And it already is saved. And, and so something that, you know, would have taken quite a while to like go through and set up all the data and set up the save systems and all that stuff. Um, it just took a morning. Yeah. And you wouldn't need like the interfaces we're talking about, like for Sam to be able to interact without code to get that same thing. Cause in the end it is still just code processing uh, yep. data structures. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but it's the focus of having there always be the data layer intermediate that that's actually where all of the content comes from. So every design that gets discussed is like, okay, we want this feature, we want this thing, whatever, right? Becomes a discussion about, okay, what does that mean like at the data layer for basically mm-hmm. for the person creating the content to be able to express what they want to express to have consequences in the game and for the programmer to be able to convert that into the actual expression, right? And so now the dialogue becomes focused right exactly on like the implementable from both sides thing, which is the data structure. And so since everything is focused there and everybody wants to be easier, it's like, Programmers want to be your program. Content creators want to be your create content, right? And so everyone's so aligned in incentives and around this common midpoint that's really close to both sides. It's really close to the code, really close to the asset creation. Um, and I think that's the thing that it makes it so that all development work and collaborative like design work is actually already causing implementation to occur at yes. a layer that everybody involved actually can already understand. So that Sam doesn't have to go learn how to program because he can learn how to manage data structures, right? Mm-hmm. Seth doesn't learn how to do art because he can learn how to think about data structures with respect to implementing design goals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And so now everybody gets to meet the same spot, which is not yep. normally what you're doing with like, because no code solutions are more are are usually like you've got stuff made by engineers and then they're like, oh, we want to make sure that like regular humans can use some of this. So let's guess what kinds of things it might want to use and then make some interfaces for that. And like, that's the whole thing, right? But it's not, the goal there isn't to create a collaborative midpoint for designers and developers to work together. Yeah. So I guess, I guess to summarize. (laughs) It's a low code tool for everyone, but not in the way you think of it, right? 
it's yeah, it shortcuts data creation in a way that doesn't require uh, programming. But we still have to do quite a lot of programming to actually make the game. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Well, that's all the time we have uh, for this episode. We'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Sampa Costa for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, just go to podcast.bscotch.net. We have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. And we'd also like to once again thank Favro for sponsoring today's episode. Visit favro.com slash bscotch to check them out. And uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.